Welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And Cam, I believe we have someone joining us. Yes, we have a very special guest this week. Joining us, my sister, Janine Smith. Hello. Now, Janine, for uh, those that maybe I, I don't think I've re- referenced it a lot on the podcast, but I have, Janine and I grew up as massive Bond fans. Would you say that's right, Janine? Oh, huge Bond fans. I, I can easily say it defined our childhood. And when we were young, we actually made a home movie recreating a James Bond story. And Janine, which of us played James Bond? Why, Cameron, I, have of course, played James Bond. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Wait, and... wait, 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 Cam, were, were you pussy galore? <laughs> I, I was Jaws, actually, and I had uh... my teeth wrapped in tinfoil. Yes. That explains what you're wearing now. <laughs> I've never stopped. <laughs> <laughs> but I am curious, Janine, you know, when we were doing this Bond uh, home movie, which James Bond were you basing your performance on? Oh, I was definitely basing my James Bond um, on more the Roger Moore Bond. I don't know if it was a specific movie per se. Uh, if it was, though, it definitely would have been Octopussy. Um, right. that was by far my favorite. And you would say, I think at this point, like Roger Moore is kind of your Bond, right? I can admit on this podcast in this safe space that I do have a giant Roger Moore tattoo on my thigh. and so yeah Janine and I in the house we watched all the Bond movies over and over again Um, we actually recently during the pandemic um, did a rewatch going through and talking back and forth on Skype and commenting on each movie we went through every single one plus once upon a time way back I wrote a James Bond theme song (laughs) that Janine sang (laughs) whoa well, hang on, whoa. No, no, no. I, I need to... This is all information that's new to me. The movie and the music. Why have I not seen or heard any of these things? I don't think a recording exists of the song, does it, Janine? Um, the full song? I don't believe so. There is a um, short uh, video of me singing it in the uh, after credits of our Bond movie, I think. Okay. Or at some point, I do sing it for a camera. It's somewhere on an old VHS tape somewhere. Yeah. This needs to be found. (laughs) I do remember all of the lyrics. (laughs) And of course, you're going to sing us out of this episode of the podcast. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) Um, And um, the song was called Scorpio. Um, (laughs) And that was because at the time... I think I had seen a James Bond non-Fleming novel called Scorpio, maybe in a bookstore or something. And so I was like, well, I could write a Bond theme song for that. I had not read the book. So the, you know, details of the lyrics do not line up with anything in the book. But uh, that was the case. There's, there's a line at one point where it says, he'll be killed with a fish. She (laughs) unsee. Oh God. (laughs) How, how old was I, Janine, do you think? 26. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Sure. <laughs> so yeah, there you have it, Scott. Um, Janine and I have a lot of history with the James Bond franchise. So, of course, she's joined us today to talk about Men in Black International, right? <laughs> of course, yes. <laughs> and thrilled to be here. Yeah. Um, well, I, I do want to get into this uh, Scorpio song at some point, and I may have to pay real money to get you guys to record it for me at some point. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a multi-instrumentalist. I can play all the bits for you. It's not a worry. <laughs> but I don't think it works with music. <laughs> It's meant to be a cappella. <laughs> it's just you with a triangle at the end, just like. Ding. No, I, I believe it was uh, Dad's bongo drums. <laughs> wow, I, 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 I don't know how to start this podcast anymore. Just, yeah. I don't know where I am. What's going on? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Janine, you are joining us. Cam, what are we talking about? Yes, we are going back to the year 1997 to talk about the second Pierce Brosnan James Bond film, Tomorrow Never Dies. All right, before we tuck into this meal of a film, it sounds like we we have a lot to say about it. Let's get the synopsis from letterbox.com out the way. Any bets before we go? Uh, I'll say five lines. I'll go with seven. Yeah. 007. Hell yeah. All right. Tomorrow never dies. Yesterday is a memory. Today is history. Tomorrow is in the hands of one man. A deranged media mogul is staging international incidents to pit the world's superpowers against each other. Now 007 must take on this evil mastermind in an adrenaline-charged battle to end his reign of terror and prevent global pandemonium. Wow. Well, there you have it. I mean... It's a little wordy, but I appreciate that the author uh, was trying to make it sound exciting. Although there's a little bit of, uh, you know, inserting their own opinion on the film in that where, what did they say? Like, it's really like exciting or something? Adrenaline charged. Yeah. Yeah, Adrenaline charged. Yeah. So a little editorializing there, but um, that's okay. And uh, it was 008 lines long. Oh. Mm. So close. Um, so before we get a little bit of a, a primer on the film, for those who don't know much about it, you two obviously have a, a Bond history. So I'll just chuck mine in quickly and then you can talk about your initial thoughts on the film before rewatching it. Yeah. Um, I had this film on VHS as a kid along with Goldeneye. I didn't see this one on the film. I started at The World Is Not Enough, I found out, the Bond films I've seen in the cinema. But this was one of the ones on my household that got played a lot. I distinctly remember the chase scene on the motorbikes and the falling down the skyscraper with the ripping the poster in half, just just highlights of my childhood. I would often joyride with my brothers handcuffed to each other on the streets of London. (laughs) Still do. (laughs) They haven't caught me yet. (laughs) And what about you guys? Well, Janine, why don't you go? I honestly don't recall my first time seeing this movie. I, I'm I'm not sure if I went to it in the theaters. It's just it's just sort of always been there. Um, for me, it's one of those Bond movies that just exists, and I have to watch it um, because I'm a big Bond fan. But it doesn't stand out to me in my memory at all. I'm sure Cameron probably remembers me seeing it better than I do. 
I actually don't because I can tell you, like, I remember the circumstances I saw it. I went to see it in theaters with a couple friends and we were hugely, hugely excited for this movie. This may be one of the Bond movies I was the most excited for in my life because Goldeneye had come out in 95 and that was the first Bond movie I ever got to see in theaters. And this would be the second. And so the anticipation was much higher because Goldeneye was so good. Um, And I remember that the theater had these sort of um, circular displays with Bond's face on them in the theater hanging. And I ended up getting one and I hung it up in my room for years. I had the poster for this movie that I put over my closet and I cut the poster in three parts. So you could open the closet door and the poster would separate. Um, And so I went and saw this movie in 97, probably the weekend it opened and I was in love with it. I thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And I actually joined, this movie wasn't available on VHS when it first came out because back in those days, only select uh, movies came out, you know, for um, on the market uh, VHS tapes. And so I ended up joining this thing called the Columbia Video uh, Club in which you had to sign up for a mailing service where you would get a certain number of movies, you know, for like a penny each. And then you had to buy several at their inflated prices. And so I joined this club just to get Tomorrow Never Dies on VHS when it was released. And so it was a movie that I watched over and over and always enjoyed a lot. Um, My thoughts of it have changed a little over time, but it's one that holds a very... Of the Brosnans, it might hold the, the biggest spot sort of in my, you know, youthful nostalgia. Wow. I yeah. find that fascinating. <laughs> That's quite a well, glowing... Oh, go on. Go on, buddy. Yeah, well, the thing about Goldeneye, because you might think, like, why isn't Goldeneye yeah. the one that I remember more? And I think it's because that one also wasn't available, you know, on VHS right away. So I got a used copy at the video store, and it had a glitch in it where the top of the screen would was blurry. Yeah, I remember so that. So I only watched it, like, once or twice, because it just annoyed me. So it was a long time before I really watched Goldeneye a lot. So I really focused all my attention on Tomorrow Never Dies. Interesting. Yeah. And yet I don't remember seeing it at all. I'm sure we watched it just at home maybe, right? I, I assume so. Yeah, well, I don't know. Uh, yeah, so I, I always got the impression from when we've spoken about these films in the past, Cam, that after Goldeneye, you kind of switched off to Brosnan. So it's actually interesting to hear that you had it a, a sort of a soft spot for it. Oh, yeah. This movie was beloved with my friends and I. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. So, obviously, GoldenEye was a, a very, very big film, and we spoke about that on the podcast when we covered it. But um, what happened when it came to making the sequel? So, Tomorrow Never Dies, I think it's, it's an interesting behind-the-scenes, because when I watch the movie, it's very kind of, in many ways, by-the-numbers James Bond. It doesn't feel like one that stands out as a production that was any sort of issue. It feels like they just kind of knew what they need to do and got it done. But that really wasn't the case. This movie was... There was a lot of pressure on it because it was the first movie made after the death of Cubby Broccoli. So the first one, not really to have a bit of his oversight. I don't know how involved he was in Goldeneye, but he did have a certain amount of approval over the script and everything. Um, But then at the same time, MGM was repurchased by a billionaire named Kurt Kakorin. And part of the um, agreement when he purchased MGM would be the first important release under his name, you know, this new MGM would be a James Bond film. And so they had an immovable date of December 19th, 1997. And this deadline was very short. Uh, Michael G. Wilson, one of the producers on the franchise, said it was the tightest deadline they'd ever had. And they were desperate. And so they started just working ideas quickly. Um, Writer um, Bruce Firestein 
had pitched, he said, the idea of a Hong Kong media baron during production on GoldenEye. And um, so they were having him work on it, uh, a version. They also went to another writer um, named Donald E. Westlake, who wrote the um, the novel series based on the character of Parker. And there's been a lot of Parker adaptations like um, Point Blank with Lee Marvin, Payback with Mel Gibson, and then also um, Parker with Jason Statham. Um, but this author was also writing another version of Tomorrow Never Dies. They ended up going with the Bruce Firestein version, but they didn't have much time. And so they brought in this group of six writers to take the screenplay that Bruce Firestein had come up with and try to hammer it into something they could shoot on. And they brought in this team of writers, um, including David Campbell Wilson, who worked on The Man from Uncle, uh, one of the earlier versions of that movie. Um, and also Nicholas Meyer, who wrote Star Trek II and Star Trek VI. And it, it was kind of a write this movie by committee. And that seems to have been a big part of it. Bruce Firestein is a little more notable for personality. He wrote Goldeneye, but he was more a humorist. And he wrote a 1982 book called Real Men Don't Eat Quiche that I think was referenced in a James Bond movie. Yeah. Like there is a bit of a connection there between him and Bond. And um, it just feels like this was a script that was being bashed together throughout production. Judy Dench has vo vocalized not being a fan of this process because they were basically given rainbow scripts where it was different colors, constantly changing. I don't know. Does that come across to you that this script seems like it was in flux? The only thing I noticed on my rewatch was it has like a tonal shift later mm -hmm. on in the film that stood out to me. But I, I, I wouldn't have picked up that it was a, a script by committee. What about you, Janine? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, to me, it, it is tonally for sure all over the place, and maybe having multiple people working on the script would explain that. Um, but it didn't stand out as that. I didn't feel that there was many different voices. Yeah, in this movie, it sounds like the primary two voices that had the most influence were uh, David Campbell Wilson and Nicholas Meyer even though there was another team, it seems like those two had the most input. They don't have a credit on the finished film, but they're often mentioned when they discuss the development of this movie. When it came to a director, they talked to Martin Campbell, who did Goldeneye. He was not interested in doing two in a row, which would be the same with the Craig era as well. And so they wanted a director who would not be quirky. That is the word they used. Please don't be quirky. <laughs> they wanted someone solid, <laughs> just solid. So they went to Roger Spottiswood, who's a Canadian director, um, who's known, he's actually got some notable credits you've heard of. He wrote um, 48 Hours, the Eddie Murphy film. Um, he also directed Terror Train, which is a pretty notable Jamie Lee Curtis horror movie. He directed Turner and Hooch with Tom Hanks, Air America with Mel Gibson, and the somewhat notorious Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. <laughs> I, is that notorious to you guys, or am I missing that one completely? Well, maybe maybe it didn't really carry over the pond, but Janine, you would say Stop or My Mom Will Shoot has a certain amount of um, awareness over in North America, right? Oh, yeah. I, I just don't understand if, they're looking, if they were looking for a solid director and not someone quirky. <laughs> Why someone affiliated at all with Stop or My Mom Would Shoot would fit in that criteria. I have absolutely no idea. I mean, the best I can come up with was he was really nice in meetings and was willing to kind of just take their direction. The yes man approach, basically. Yeah, that seems to be about it. Um, 
the original title of this movie was going to be Tomorrow Never Lies, um, based on the idea of the newspapers that lie, obviously. <gasps> but there was actually a, a misprint on one of the scripts, and it was called Tomorrow Never Dies, and they just decided they liked that more. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then when it came to uh, casting, Anthony Hopkins was approached to play Carver. They'd approached him many times in the past, um, especially for Goldeneye. They were talking to him as well. He chose instead to do the Mask of Zorro. So I'll leave it up to you guys. Do you think that was the right choice? I, I think so. And, and only because we instead got Jonathan Price. Right. And that he's, he's just peaking in this movie. I can't imagine anyone else doing this, this role. You know how I feel about Jonathan Price, Cam. True, true. I, I just, you know, I think maybe Anthony Hopkins was better served playing this famous Mexican outlaw. <laughs> like, <laughs> boy, the 90s, right, guys? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would have liked to have seen Anthony Hopkins in a Bond movie, but I feel like Price is, like, savoring this role. Yeah. Whereas, like, Anthony Hopkins has a tendency to kind of phone in a bit sometimes. Wow, real commentary on Anthony Hopkins here. I know, right? Maybe not in 1997, though, so who knows. Um, Also notable, Monica Bellucci tested for Paris Carver, but they ended up choosing uh, Terry Hatcher instead, who was three months pregnant at the time, so they had to shoot her scenes very quickly right at the front of the shoot. Um, The other notable um, uh, decisions were in terms of names. Um, Elliot Carver was originally going to be Elliot Harmsway, which... (laughs) These are just terrible. <laughs> well, if you want terrible, the character of uh, Y. Lin, they originally were going to call her Lin Tsi Pao. <sighs> which I feel like is supposed to be like Lindsay Poo or something, like in terms of the way it comes across, maybe? Don't try and recover know. it for him, Cam. Don't give yeah. them out. That's oh, awful. That's not a recovery. That's that's not a defense in any way, shape, or form. It's pretty damning just to even say that that's what they were thinking. So yeah. um, apparently when Michelle Yeoh was hired, she turned to them and said, uh, pow means bun. <laughs> so <laughs> they were like, oh, okay. I feel like they had no idea what they were even saying with that name. They were just like, we need to make something cutesy and Bond girl sounding. And thankfully, they got rid of it. The Carver alternate name sounds almost i, I don't want to use the phrase bondian because it's a bit done to death but yeah, it's got that sort of wink at the camera kind of name i don't mind that but the, the alternate Waylin one's just straight up bad yeah. well one is like really cartoonish and the other is offensive <laughs> <laughs> like full-on just kind of racist so <laughs> <laughs> yeah but better left uh yeah uh, no <laughs> so the other um creative choice i'll mention is the decision to bring david arnold in to score the film oh. uh eric sarah did goldeneye and that was a very polarizing score david arnold did a album called shaken and stirred that is a tribute to bond music that is fantastic and i recommend it highly to anyone who enjoys bond music and that album got him some attention and he was recruited into the fold and um I bring up him because I really do think he is, at least for me, one of the major highlights of this film. I, I agree. I think David Arnold is just awesome at creating a score for this movie. Were you a fan of the Goldeneye score, Janine? <sighs> no. It's, yeah. You know, most notably the uh, car race or chase scene with Xenia, in which we're treated to some crazy disco orchestra. I, I don't know what. 
on a Casio keyboard. On a ca- oh. But no, this is a huge shift um, yeah. for the Bond score for, between Gold and I and Tomorrow Never Dies. And I, I think the score in this is great. Mm-hmm. Did that guy have any say about Cheryl Crow doing the theme tune? I feel like he didn't, no. Okay, then oh. he's, good. he's all good in my books. Oh, well, we'll discuss that in a second. Um, As for the business of the year 1997, Tomorrow Never Dies, no surprise. Ooh, that rhymes. (laughs) Maybe I'll write that into my next James Bond song. (laughs) Um, It was a big hit. Not quite as big as Goldeneye. Um, So domestically, Tomorrow Never Dies did $125 million international 208 for a total of 333 million dollars um just about just under 20 million less than goldeneye which did 352 million um i think that can largely be credited to the fact that this movie opened the same day as titanic oh wow <laughs> uh i wondered why that date that rung a bell in my head okay yeah um, i'm sure at the time bond felt like we've got the upper hand guys like you know, James Bond is an established name. Mm-hmm. Titanic was a huge problem production that people had been, you know, crapping all over for a long time. And well, never bet against James Cameron. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so Tomorrow Never Dies was actually number four at the worldwide box office for the year. Right behind number one, of course, was Titanic, which made $1.9 billion. <laughs> you know, this this could really explain why I don't remember Tomorrow Never Dies, um, yeah. the first time I saw it or anything like that, because the impact of Titanic on me was so huge that I could see Tomorrow Never Dies getting lost. Well, it feels like a movie that, you know, you look at the box office, it did very well. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's one that everyone saw, but no one really talked about because they were swept up in Titanic fever. That makes total sense. Yeah. And so, yeah, number one, Titanic. Number two was the Lost World Jurassic Park. And number three was Men in Black. So it was really like three big movies that year. Wow. What a year. Yeah. And so, yeah, Tomorrow Never Dies was number four. It just beat out Air Force One with Harrison Ford. Another big movie that year. Mm. And 1997, uh, a couple other notable things, was a big year for Pierce Brosnan. Down at number 18, he had Dante's Peak. (laughs) Yeah, buddy. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> the first of the volcano movies of 1997. What a year that was. What was the other one? Volcano. Volcano. With Tommy oh, yeah. Jones. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so um just further down the list, I'm not gonna go into detail, but Tomorrow Never Dies and Dante's Peak for that matter, beat out a handful of spy movies we'll be tackling in the future. Movies like The Jackal with Bruce Willis, The Saint with Val Kilmer, the first Austin Powers film. The Bill Murray comedy, The Man Who Knew Too Little, and the Jean Claude Van Damme, Dennis Rodman team up movie. Double team. (laughs) Yes. And so, yeah, that kind of wraps up the business for that year. Tomorrow Never Dies, big success, but I feel like even like a couple days after this movie opened, no one was talking about it. (laughs) Well, it literally died tomorrow. That's right. Oh, there you go. Right. Yeah, bad pun. Well, Cam, thanks for letting us. Uh, thanks for letting us pump you for info. Oh, I have that line <laughs> written down. I got there first. Hey, hey. Oh, uh, bad line. But okay, I'm going to throw it to you two first about your thoughts on rewatching this film and going back to it. You had different opinions growing up on it. 
Let's hear what you think now. Okay, Janine, why don't you go first? Yeah. I'll go first. Um, okay, so this movie is not a favorite of mine, um, and I generally only watch it maybe once every two or three years. Uh, and because I just recently watched it in Cameron and Mai's uh, pandemic bond rewatch, I was not thrilled about watching it again. Um, <laughs> I, in fact, think I threw a bit of a temper tantrum about it yesterday. <laughs> uh, but I sat and I watched it last night. And for me, I mean, the saving grace of this movie, and I just love so much is Jonathan Price as Elliot Carver. He's just so much fun uh, that I I actually enjoyed this movie more this on this last rewatch last night um, because I focused on when he was going to be on screen. In terms of how I feel about the movie as a whole, I just I just find it one of the more weaker Bond movies in general, um, and the worst Bond movie is still a lot more enjoyable to me than almost any other movie. So that is also saying something, but it's, it's rough. I find that Bond isn't at his peak performance as a agent. I find Pierce Brosnan really tough for me to watch represent the character. And I just find, I find this movie is also feels pretty dated in its themes and some of its scenes. You know, we discussed earlier some Waylon and some of the problems there. Um, they did remove some of the racism, obviously, before going into production, but also left some of it in. Um, yes. And I can I can forgive a lot of the Bond movies for being, you know, out of touch with today's standards. But I, I just find this movie just really dated and problematic for me and just not fun unless it's revolving directly around uh jonathan price's elliot carver so that's a no for the knock list for tomorrow never dies. uh right moving on cam what do we have next <laughs> well we'll be back next week with... <laughs> okay I, I wanted to drill into this because uh, i knew you were going to mention janine about pierce brosnan because cam had told me in the past you don't particularly like pierce brosnan as Bond Mm-mm. and obviously for me Goldeneye is probably in the top five Bond films all time and Pierce Brosnan's probably my second favorite Bond okay, okay. Uh, just because he was my first Bond mm-hmm. that's probably why but what about Pierce Brosnan's portrayal of Bond because I'm sure you like him as a person and an actor but his portrayal of Bond don't you like well and, and you know to go back like I love Goldeneye to this day, and I I love Pierce Brosnan in Goldeneye, but I almost separate that as being a him being Bond in my mind. Um, I mean, my my Bond is Roger Moore, so I like a very campy Bond. He was the Bond that I sort of gravitated towards as a kid, probably because he is so campy and goofy, and his movies are less serious. Um, but Pierce Brosnan. To me, I just don't buy him as having sort of that thing that Bond has that women are attracted to and men want to be. And this is just me personally. I just find 
he uses his his chin and his jaw too much <laughs> in his acting and it it just I I can't look beyond it anymore. It drives me out of my mind. And I I personally, although I can admit he's a good-looking guy, I don't find him I find him easy to resist. So the fact that women are falling over him, it just, I don't buy it. And then when he, when he's in bed with them, I just find it kind of creepy. And I find, I find as well that he falls in love and he's just this, you know, intense love for these women that I just, I feel like those are special moments in Bond when he has that love. And Pierce Brosnan, it's just every woman. It's just, it's too much tenderness. Mm, yeah. Well, uh, firstly, I'll, I'll have you know that Pierce Brosnan studied under Charlton Heston uh, for chin acting. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think you should check your facts because he is a fantastic chin actor. <laughs> but okay, yeah, I can I can see your point. I, I, when I look, look back on... Brosnan a bit now. I, I kind of see him as like a, a dad. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I whereas I see like Sean Connery as like a your cool uncle that's gonna like beat someone up at a bar, which is why he's my favorite Bond. Right. He seems more dangerous, I suppose is the word I'm looking for. Pierce Brosnan seems like your cuddly dad. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And plus when Pierce Brosnan jokes around, it sounds like dad jokes. Whereas like when Roger Moore or um or you know Sean Connery drops them. They just feel a little funnier. <laughs> well, and, and I think the thing is, is tying off of that, like Connery, you go, he's kind of tough and sexy. Moore's kind of goofy. Um, I don't know what Lazenby is, but he's something. You know, Timothy Dalton's a bit dark and aggressive. And then it's almost like they try and combine all of that into Pierce Brosnan and none of it works. It's almost like, you know, I talked about the development of this movie and how they wanted someone who wasn't going to be quirky. They wanted solid. And I think <laughs> yeah. Pierce Brosnan is very solid. <laughs> and I think, you know, obviously he has a ton of fans. I, I'm a big fan of Pierce Brosnan's work, but it doesn't have the flash and flair you find in the others. Like he doesn't go far left or far right afield the way that, I mean, you know, Roger Moore goes crazy. Like he really does have <laughs> the full comedic, chops for the in that franchise and it, it definitely is tailored to him and same with uh connery they're really writing those movies for connery i don't know that they were writing movies for pierce brosnan i can't really tell honestly well okay so cam what what do you think about it now you've gone back to it yeah i still really enjoy this movie um i i find as an action film it definitely represents that late 90s action movie. You know, you think of True Lies opening in 1994, and we've talked about that movie on this podcast. What the expectations were for action adventure movies, the bar had been raised. And in this movie feels more so than um, Goldeneye to be a very straightforward action movie in a lot of ways. You know, the villain, um, he's set up to be the villain pretty much from moment one. And there's no doubt that he's the villain the entire way through. Like, there's no secret to him. It's like, hey, this guy wrote about it in a newspaper. He must be the guy. Bond, go check him out. He's probably bad. <laughs> you know, like it feels very just like, okay, let's just get through all the complications. Bond films often have very convoluted plots. This one's just like on rails. And I couldn't help but notice when you get to 
Um, really, once Bond is down diving in the Devonshire um, with Wai Lin, the movie is just a series of action sequences connected with only the loosest of threads. Like, it's just like we have to race from one action scene to another. All that said, I think technically I really enjoy it. I love this, you know, very low CG action. We barely have any CG in this movie, and I, I miss that a lot. So I enjoy the action for that. But there are like relationships. I think Brosnan has zero chemistry with either of the Bond leading ladies in this movie. Um, and we'll talk about, I want to talk about Paris Carver later on, but I kind of come down where Janine does. Like, I really think this movie is enlivened by Jonathan Price. And so for me, I still enjoy it a lot. I had a lot of fun watching it last night, but when I'm comparing it to Goldeneye, which had a lot to say about the James Bond character, it felt like it was mining deeper in terms of what Pierce Brosnan had to bring to that character. This one really does feel like, okay, we need to make a Bond movie. You know, here's the elements. Here's your Bond. Let's go, guys. It doesn't feel like they were, I mean, I don't even know if they had time given the development, but it doesn't feel like they were digging deep so much as just creating another Bond movie. I suppose I'll jump in with my two cents on it now, going back to it. I still love it. And I agree with you, Cam, as an action film, I think it's a, it's a pretty solid action film. And, you know, there's a lot of elements you actually could compare it to True Lies. I mean, they both fly a jumbo, uh, not jumbo jet, they both fly a, a fighter jet at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, but he barely does any spy work. Yeah. He literally turns up, uh, he, he gets a, he infiltrates the Hamburg party. And then he says, oh yeah, my name's James Bond. Oh yeah, and I used to have sex with your wife. And... <laughs> <laughs> and then and then they're off, basically, because you've already got your bad guy and you've got like your good guy. But you think of like Dr. No, he goes to Jamaica. He investigates Dr. No. You don't actually meet the bad guy until an hour into the film. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of, you know, guesswork going on and trying to figure the clues out. Whereas there's no, there's no breadcrumbs here to figure out. You, you know what you have to do by the end of this film, which is take down Elliot Carver. And this is the only James Bond movie with Pierce Brosnan where the villain isn't a mystery. Like, we know who the villain is, like, from moment one. You know, you look at the other three um, Brosnan Bonds, there's a reveal. There is, like, a, you know, mystery at the core of the movie. Yeah, and I think that's probably an element this film is missing. I, I But I did, I did enjoy watching it. I actually watched it twice in preparation for this podcast because I find it to be quite an enjoyable film. And mm-hmm. uh, Michelle Yeoh as Waylin is fantastic. I, I watch her in any film. She's great. So she carries me a lot through. And of course, you know, Jonathan Price, if he had a mustache on Elliot Carver, he would be twirling it as he talked. I mean, his typing skills are something to write home about. I think, oh. you know, scenes where he's typing on his little like uh, keyboard thing. I, I don't know what they were telling Jonathan Price to do, but I'm so happy he did it. I can't say enough good things about Jonathan Price in this movie. Um, and one thing I also I found last night in rewatching this is that this is by far the most easy to follow Bond villain plot to this day. You know, so, some of them we sit and we watch and we have no clue what's going on, and, and we and, and we don't care because it's so much fun. But this movie, which is less fun, at least to me. At least having a plot that's like, I know what the villain's doing. I know what James Bond needs to do. It's perfect. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I, I don't have a problem with it being simple. It's just more of a surprise in a way. Mm-hmm. It feels very much like they wanted a straightforward action movie and not to 
confuse audiences because you know the plot of Goldeneye, the one the one movie before this, is actually fairly complicated. And then you know, Janine, you and I, you know, recently, you know, watched, for example, like Diamonds Are Forever or Octopussy. Yeah. Movies where the plots, you really have to sit there and try to figure it out. Or even License to Kill, which could be, you know, you could look at License to Kill and say that's a straightforward action movie. But the plot of it is actually quite complicated when you start talking about Wayne Newton. I, I think even there were parts in maybe like, is it Casino Royale or one of the Craig ones where we were like, wait, how did we end up here? And we both yes. had no clue. You, yeah. don't, you don't have that with this movie. And I think that's definitely to its benefit. Well, you have that moment right at the start with the sinking of the Devonshire where it cuts to Jonathan Price, you know, in his control room writing the story. So you're like, <laughs> there you go. There's your bad guy. <laughs> yeah. I was going to correct your pronunciation of the ship name, but the, the film says it both ways. So I think I'll let it off. Don't be an Admiral Roebuck. <laughs> uh, there, there is a Scott in this film as well, which I was quite pleased to see, but he is a bad guy. So <laughs> also a very young Gerard Butler. Mm-hmm. What, yeah. was, I read he was in it, but I couldn't figure him out. I mean, this is not a Vern Troyer moment, but like, where was he in the film? He's on the Devonshire. Um, he is um, the. I think he's credited as lead seaman. Um, he <laughs> he um, basically has a line to the captain seconds before they, you know, are sunk. Okay, I'll have to have a look next yeah. time I watch it in ten years' time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but I, I, let me just speak a little bit about Piers Brosnan and you guys can just sort of chime in on it. But for me, I was really disappointed in what they'd done with the character following on from Goldeneye. I know you kind of alluded to that, Cam. Uh, it, it feels like they've just designed a bond by committee, which is how they wrote the script. Like they go, oh, we want some quips and we want some action scenes and that's about it. But it, it felt like it was very uh, surface level bond. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Bond has these moments in the previous film where they're really examining who James Bond is and they're updating him to the 90s to kind of tackle maybe a more sensitive Bond, but also kind of talking about the, the conflict between a sensitive Bond and the business Bond is in. Whereas like this movie, I don't think there's anything. I mean, there's stuff in terms of the relationship with Paris Carver. I feel like those are thrown in basically as breadcrumbs to appease um Pierce Brosnan, because otherwise, I know he was very hungry to chew into material with Bond. Like he would often complain they weren't giving him really strong character stuff. This feels like the movie to me that probably when he wrapped, he was like, guys, we got to do better than this. I could definitely see that. He is not, in my notes, I only wrote two notes about his portrayal as Bond. And I wrote uh, 200% more quips. And he seems far less interested in doing it. Yeah. Did you notice, I'm curious, Janine or Scott, did you notice that almost every single conversation he has with Carver is is spoken in puns about the news or reporting? Yes. I, I did. And it, it annoyed me. Like they have nothing to say other than puns to one another. And I mean, that, that and they're bad puns. Oh, that one where I can't remember the line, but he sort of trails off and he goes, adrift. Oh, I know because um, he's a banker, and yes. I yes, like I think he gets some sort of job offer or something, you know, a polite job offer from Carver, and he goes, uh, "Oh, I wouldn't know what to do. I, I'd be lost at sea, adrift." Oh, oh, and I'm like, I wrote that one down and underlined it. I'm like, <laughs> like this isn't a good line, guys. It's bad, and like there's a few lines like that throughout the movie. There's some real clunkers. 
and I know Janine, you and I like were laughing our heads off even at the start where you had like the character of Robinson giving exposition about the arms bazaar. Yes. And he's listing all the weapons there and he's like, fun for the whole family. <laughs> <laughs> they're all quips, but they're not funny. <laughs> like they're really like, they make you cringe. <laughs> yeah. Like your dad wrote it. Yeah, at least back to the dad thing again. I mean, you know, you've got, you've got scenes like he ejects the secondary pilot in the plane and he's just like, backseat driver and you just think was that necessary i'll take that one i expect a quip in those openings i don't know janine how do you feel about the backseat driver thing i mean on its own i think it would be okay but because it's in a movie that's filled with just terrible quip after terrible quip and i personally don't find that pierce brosnan's particularly good at delivering quips who would you say is the worst at quips of the james bonds Oof. That's a great question. Dalton. You think Dalton? Yeah. He's just the most broody of them all. It could be it could be Dalton for me too, and only because he is such a, a much more like aggressive bond that quips feel a little bit more out of his element. And he also didn't do it that I mean he didn't do it that often, which I like, but it it wasn't great when he did. Yeah, like Dalton he's either doing them with like this locked jaw intensity mm-hmm. or he's like going weirdly theatrical. You know, I think of the scene where um, he's going down, you know, in the cello case and they go through <laughs> the border and he's like, we have nothing to declare. That was great to be, you know what? I stand corrected. That was the best part. <laughs> like, it's very like, he's like singing opera when yeah. he says it, but you know, moments like that. Fine. I, I don't know that. I think the thing is like, Craig is not very good at them either, but they've also, not forced him to do them Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it feels like they were forcing brosnan to do them and it doesn't help the backseat driver thing for me is three minutes before he does the whole uh filthy habit oh yeah yeah. just too much too much yeah and and let's just make a a mention that opening scene which actually took up like a third of my notes is basically the same opening as goldeneye Mm-hmm. You yep. take out the, the 006 stuff, but why on earth would they choose in this second film to have it in the snow on a plane um, and have people running after him whilst he's trying to fly off? Like, I just didn't know why you wanted to do it again. I don't know. Like In isolation, I think the sequence is actually pretty strong. I like that you have this missile zooming in, so you get a little bit of that tension and that ticking clock. Um, it works for me. Um, I mean, you get goofy stuff like the balsa wood floor of the plane mm. that the guy shoots through. But overall, like, I love the impact shots. I love Brosnan in the cockpit of that plane firing that machine gun as the camera pans across. Like, to me, that is maybe his most badass moment in the movie. But I guess it is a little generic. Um, if I were watching it back to back with Golden, I think it would bother me more. What I don't understand is we're basically, you know, this opening scene, we're not seeing Bond. We're spending a lot of time in the control room um, with all the exposition going on. We're IDing terrorists or IDing what the arms are. Why are they calling James Bond White Knight? Um, well, they're using a lot of chess metaphors, so I guess he's the White Knight. But, but why? I mean, they all know who he is in that room. Well, generally, yeah. you would sacrifice a knight pretty early on. Okay, so, well, so the, like, yeah, the expendable concept of James Bond, but... But then they're saying right off the bat, sort of like, well, he's... Ex- it's just, it just didn't sit to me, because I'm like, there's no reason for them to call him White Knight in this control room. I think it's because they want you to think in, in the audience, who could it be when there's only <laughs> one answer to that mystery? Yeah. 
Yeah. You've you got M in the room, so you know it's probably to do with Bond. Does Admiral Roebuck not know who James Bond is? Like, they're trying to keep it a secret from him? <laughs> <laughs> well, that that was my question. I just, I just didn't really understand why he has... I guess it would be almost like a secondary code name because he 007 is the first. Maybe. They never brought it back. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I, I won't say much about Admiral Roebuck, but he does give me <laughs> one of the, the funniest notes I wrote down. Uh, and that is this film's obsession with spelling out acronyms. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. they love that in Bond movies because they did that too with the Halo Jump. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he's like, GPS, Global Positioning Satellite. And it's like, mm-hmm. you just said it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Halo jump, oh. uh, high altitude, low opening. Okay, we get it, man. <laughs> I, I will say, I mean, the one thing this opening does do is um, we saw that they were actually including like James Bond continuity in Goldeneye. Um, that the opening sequence was connected to the larger movie. Some of the more ones are not at all, for example, like mm-hmm. For Your Eyes Only. Mm-hmm. But like Goldeneye did it. And this one does a little bit too, where you have the character of Henry Gupta introduced in your intro played by ricky J. so like i can kind of appreciate that that they're giving this character a little more to do and a little more backstory i don't know that he's like a villain everyone remembers i mean i kind of do because he's played by ricky J. and for those that don't know ricky J. is a famous uh, magician um i believe he passed recently i may be wrong about that but i think so or maybe he faked it maybe it's all a magic <laughs> <now. laughs> but um you know he was a big deal and he is an actor or was an actor at least at, at you know, who appeared in Tom, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movies a lot. So I kind of just enjoy seeing him. I don't know that he means a lot to anyone else. So did he mean anything to you guys? It was nice to see what happened to the guy who owned the shop from Cloak and Dagger. <laughs> um, but no, he meant absolutely nothing to me. Janine? No, me neither. I remember when this movie came out in 1997, I was working in community television. Um, I uh, worked uh, doing computer graphics and script assisting on a talk show called Ingram, hosted by a guy named David Ingram. <laughs> and he, he was a tax accountant, but he also was, you know, he just kind of had that gift of the gab. So he would have guests on and talk about all sorts of issues. Um, he looked exactly like this guy and all my friends made fun of this movie and referred to this character as Ingram. <laughs> You've already given him more character than the entire film does. Yeah, that's some regional humor, a regional reference for everyone who lived in Vancouver, BC. <laughs> okay, guys, I could talk about Pierce Brosnan and James Bond nuzzling the neck of a dead woman for the next hour. But let's talk about that dead woman. And that is Terry Hatcher playing Paris Carver for all of 30 minutes in the film. Um, I didn't have much of an opinion on her as a kid. Didn't really have much of an opinion on her appearance when I rewatched it. Now I know if she was pregnant, maybe it makes sense that she's not in it that long. Maybe that was a choice. Any thoughts? Possibly, yeah. yeah. Any thoughts on that? Janine, what are your thoughts on Paris Carver? Because I know that when we talked on Zoom, you had a lot of thoughts about <laughs> Paris Carver. Oh, okay. I mean, I could go on about Paris Carver's black dress for hours. <laughs> Just for hours. And the hair. The The style of Paris Carver is, is a rough, rough thing for me to get beyond. Um, this character, I mean, just, I have a real, I have an issue with sort of fake backgrounds that we're supposed to care about. So the, the background between Paris and James Bond, they really want us to care about these two people's history and it's executed very poorly. And I, I just, I don't care about this character. 
I don't care that she dies. I find it, I, I wrote it down. I, I, I find the story surrounding, you know, where James Bond's pumping her for information and they're talking at the party and they're caught on to right away. And I just yeah. found, I just found that whole story arc just quite frankly embarrassing. I think the problem is this story arc plays out in like two scenes. Mm-hmm. But you're <laughs> you supposed re- to care so much. I know you get the reunion at the world's quietest party <laughs> where it's just like tinkling piano music in the background that everyone can hear. It's it's kind of strange, but yeah, they kind of squabble back and forth in that sequence. And then it cuts to her in his hotel room professing their love. And my favorite moment and I was dying of laughter watching it is when she's like, tell me, James, did I get too close? Oh. And there's the pause and you can see the Brosnan tortured acting. And I think Brosnan gives a serviceable performance in this movie. I, I'm not going to crap on him, but I, he's handed <laughs> unwinnable material here. But he has the long pause and looks tortured. And then he goes, yes. And the score. I mean, this score is like from out of Africa or gone with the wind or something. Like you expect like this sweeping love story to suddenly take place. And it's uh, in service of a character we've known for all of three minutes. Well, and and maybe this plays different that uh, to people that aren't so familiar with the Bond history, but we mm. we know of Tracy, we know of Bond's big love. I mean, so this character, we're like, who? Who is this? Well, it's a big. You know, you said it earlier. It's a big deal when James Bond really falls in love. At least it should be. Should, yeah. And you know, I think you know Natalia. They kind of skirted around that of maybe she's maybe it is a love there but they have some dialogue hinting that way but it's not like the the big tracy um relationship or you know going further um the vesper relationship right. you get years later yeah both of those they're putting in the work and this is all tell no show it's only characters talking about this great love we've never seen and never experienced but then if you come at it from more of a you know, they've they've had a success with GoldenEye. They've obviously brought people to the theaters that may have never seen a Bond film mm-hmm. or never gone to the to the cinema to see it. They might not even know who Tracy Bond was. I didn't know when I watched it as an eleven year old. So I bought in the fact that he, you know, he used to date Paris, and it makes sense to me. Yeah, and that that makes total sense to me that people that don't know the history might buy it a little better. But also, like looking at that, is we have apparently this passionate history between Paris and James and then what happened in her dating history to lead her to marry a clearly insane man that is Elliot Carver I mean there is no question that you know okay she doesn't know necessarily that he's a terrorist or whatever you know looking to dominate the world but he's clearly insane yeah he doesn't hide it well so it's just this crazy juxtaposition of having this like romantic history with James Bond, which, you know, as problematic as that character can be, he tends to be a fairly passionate lover and, you know, um, partner in the times he's been sort of a partner. And then you have Elliot Carver, who who's just a, a raving lunatic in, in all scenarios. So... It, I don't know. It just doesn't work for me having that trying to embrace this passionate history and yet trying to reconcile the fact she's married to a nut job. 
if you, if you go past base level what the film tells you, then yeah, you'll just go, why on earth is she with him? Mm-hmm. But but you know, it, the film does try and give you stuff like you get that line, "Do you still sleep with a gun under your pillow?" And you're meant to think, "Oh, oh, she knows him," and that's that's kind of meant to give you some sort of impression that there was a connection. And I think that's how they wrote it. it was this is base level, give something, give James something to talk about and sex, and then move on because he's not going to have sex any other times in this film. Do you feel any heat in this relationship, though? Well, I don't think it's helped that uh, Paris Carver is played by Terry Hatcher, who, in, <laughs> in my opinion, uh, Cam had a hot take at the start. My hot take is good. <laughs> Terry Hatcher gives Caden Christensen a run for his money when it comes to wooden acting. <laughs> Ooh, that's cold, Scott. And I watched that Superman TV show in the 90s. You're being a real Admiral Roebuck right now. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I I don't know. Like, it's hard for me to really comment that much because obviously she's not very good here. Like, she just has no chemistry Mm -hmm. with Pierce Brosnan whatsoever. Like, it just doesn't work. But, like, my experiences with Terry Hatcher are all tied to watching Lois and Clark growing up. And I was a big fan of that show. And that show went off the air in 97, the year that uh, this movie comes out. And I was a big fan of her portrayal of Lois Lane on that show. But... I don't think I've watched Terry Hatcher in anything since. I've seen, you know, gone back and seen her earlier work in like Tango and Cash or something. But um, I, I never watched Desperate Housewives. Um, I'm trying to think of what she's even done since that I would have seen. So I feel like it's hard for me to comment because all I can really talk about is Lois and Clark and liking her on that. I thought I did watch Desperate Housewives for the first three or four seasons. And she, I thought she was great. I didn't think she was wooden at all. I thought she had a lot of depth to her performance. But again, the lines she's given are terrible. It's just, I don't, it's just all terrible. Well, like some actors, you can give them garbage and they will deliver. I mean, I think Jonathan Price is doing that a lot of the time here. Can't say enough. Um, And some some actors can't do that. Like they just don't have that in their toolbox. Mm -hmm. You know, they can't just take bad dialogue and make it work. You know, there's... That's why actors like, you know, Nicolas Cage or Vincent Price or all of these great larger than life actors are so valuable because they can really bring life to, you know, questionable dialogue. Uh, I don't know that Terry Hatcher could do that. That doesn't seem to be her strength. I think, you know, Monica Bellucci, who was who they looked at, I don't know that she could have pulled off this dialogue or saved it either. But I think you would have a lot more chemistry between her and Brosnan, I think. Well, and... and to be fair too in the history of sort of bond girls a lot of them have been wooden um it's yeah. just that the plot around them or the dynamic performance of Sean Connery or Roger Moore is so good that it sort of goes unnoticed like you just sort of shrug and as well as that combined with you're not sort of buying that there is this intense history it's a little yeah. bit more forgivable. And I think, you know, unfortunately, Terry Hatcher is a bit of a um, a victim of the script and the performance by Pierce Brosnan. And as well as Cam said, the fact there's no chemistry between them. Do you think that this movie is hurt by the fact it follows Goldeneye? Because there's lots of Bond movies where we could say there's not exactly a lot of sizzle going on between, say, older Roger Moore and some of those Bond girls. But those movies kind of fall one after the other, whereas we are coming off of Goldeneye, where you had 
um, you know, Famke Jansen and Isabella Skorupko, mm. both of whom had a lot of chemistry with Pierce Brosnan. So when you kind of go to this, it makes it that much more jarring. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think there was just a whole, you know, many things that factored into this, this relationship just not working. And I think Terry yeah. Hatcher, although her performance is a piece of it, I don't think it's the majority of why it doesn't work. You're right. I think the haircut's a big part. <laughs> her haircut is full on 90s. That look it's, is 90s. But it's like 90s mom. Yeah. Well, she must be in her 30s at this point. It was the style at the time. Yeah. <laughs> at the time. Cam, you got it now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't know why it's a Cam can... and not Janine. <laughs> <laughs> because then you would have been wrong. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Noted. Maybe we should bring, though, the character of Wylin into the conversation here now, too. Because, you know, obviously Michelle Yeoh is the primary female lead in this movie. But I think Michelle Yeoh is incredible in this movie. I want to talk in depth about actually some of the, you know, the physical work she does in this and the character stuff. But, like, I think just kind of dovetailing off of Paris Carver, once again, I don't think there's any real chemistry between um, Brosnan and Yo in terms of being romantic partners. No. No, I, I don't get why they went down that alleyway at all. I would have left it as just two people who are spies for their own mm-hmm. countries. Well, I'll, I'll pull it forward to, like, um, one of my favorite things about Quantum of Solace is the fact that you have this this woman come in and sort of be a partner to Bond in that movie, and there's no relationship. They don't try and really make any sort of sexual chemistry. Um, I mean, there is because they're both extremely good-looking people, but they don't try and force anything on you. And in this movie, I think this movie could have really benefited from that same approach, is just making them really, you know, equals in trying to reach this common goal of defeating Elliot Carver and not try and build a romantic relationship into that because it just didn't work. I I actually made the same note about that character from Quantum of Solace um, and that I think if this movie had been made, you know, 15 years later, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't have, you know, forced this romantic relationship between the two because there's like moments where like Brosnan is just like staring at her and you're like, you can tell that they were like, we. this is the moment. We need to show a connection here, a romantic, you know, heat or something. And it's just not working <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. You're in the shower together. Give me heat. Give me something. No, just give me the soap. <laughs> <laughs> but Michelle Yeoh, I think, is a big other re- You know, we talked about, um, you know, Jonathan Price, But I think Michelle Yeoh is another reason this movie really works in that the action in this movie you know, she's a big part of the reason it works because Michelle Yeoh did almost all of her own stunts. It was only, I think, two or three things she didn't do. She's coming off of movies like Super Cop, um, for example, you know, the Jackie Chan film and a lot of her work in Hong Kong cinema. And she brings that over here and it has that authenticity. And every time she's given action stuff to do, I think she's absolutely fantastic. She's absolutely the saving grace. Apart from Elliot Carver, her scenes where she's actually fighting and using her martial arts skills are great and it's something you don't often see in bond films yeah like there's a physicality to stunts she's pulling off like there's moments where um i'm thinking for example of the scene where like they're going down the big banner there Mm. which is an amazing set piece um inspired by i think it was um captain blood i think the um, errol flynn movie but um they're going down that and you see them hanging and you can you can tell that Pierce Brosnan's stunt double is in the scene. 
but you can see Michelle Yeoh is in the scene. And that helps these action scenes so much. You see her on that motorcycle a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, obviously this was, again, 1997, so things have changed significantly for women in movies since then. But I think it would have been really fun if they played more off the fact that she's so much more competent in physicality than Bond. I mean, her Michelle Yeoh's martial arts abilities and, you know, for lack of a better word, gymnastics is so much stronger than Pierce Brosnan. I think it would have been really fun if they'd have leaned into that. Wait, you're saying that Pierce Brosnan isn't a gymnast? <laughs> I mean, when it comes to like moving around his chin and jaw, he's got he's got flexibility like no one. But he's, a, yeah. he's not a gymnast. He's a cunning linguist. <laughs> I was trying to avoid that. Connection. Oh, oh, I wasn't. Uh, that line works the best though when it's followed up with the don't ask don't tell <laughs> between uh Monty Petty and uh M. I, I do like that moment but um yeah like you have that fight sequence which is entirely like pointless that scene where they're in the sh- you know they have the shower scene after the motorbike chase and then she handcuffs Bond to the shower yeah. and takes off he trails her to her hideout which has already been infiltrated by goons and I'm like like what That's where the movie, I feel like, is just connecting action sequences. Like, there is only the sparsest of writing going into connecting them. Oh, it's it's bad. And that that scene's the the part where I feel like her character loses a little bit of agency because he saves her again, and then she kind of looks at him like, oh, isn't he sweet? Mm -hmm. Instead of, oh, oh, isn't he in my way? Yeah. And then you just lose it. Well, there's even that point i mean this was kind of funny but also kind of like cringeworthy is where um she brings out the computer like all the hidden stuff comes out and he pierce brosnan sort of goes over like he he's gonna handle this part but the only reason he can't is because it's in i guess chinese that that scene is full of like three different gags of him being like oh men yeah (laughs) yeah like with the fan and the the flamethrower uh, yeah, it's just like, oh, you, oh, Bond. Yeah, it, it just, it doesn't work. No. Like, if this character was written now, you wouldn't have her, you know, when they go to the stealth boat um, infiltration sequence at the end, you wouldn't have her captured immediately. <laughs> There's a yeah. door opening behind you, huh? Yeah. Like, they, for a character that's hyper-capable, and I love, you know, scenes early on, like, with the... Um, when he's uh, breaking into the Hamburg uh, newspaper plant or whatever it is, and he's being chased around and shot at, and she's just like walking down the walls on the cable, waving at him. Like they give that character a lot of kind of cheekiness, but they also don't give her a lot to do as a character until like the third act. It's weird. And that I think this character should have been given far more material early on. Like she talks to him at the party and then just kind of shows up in action scenes occasionally. It's just it's weird because they had, it's like they wanted to bring in a really strong female presence to sort of represent, I'm going I'm to guess like equality, <laughs> but then they don't know what to do with it and they undermine it and then they try and force it and it, it just doesn't work. Whereas they had that perfect formula in GoldenEye with Xenia. Yeah. Yeah. Xenia and, and also Natalia where Natalia's on her own journey True. throughout the movie that we're seeing. Yeah. Whereas, like, Wai Lin, all her journey is happening off screen, unseen. <laughs> right. And, and you know, 
it comes into question, could why Lynn had succeeded if Bond wasn't there? Would it maybe have worked better? Because obviously Elliot Carver is trying to create a war between China and Britain, right? And so we get all the stuff with Bond being sent on the mission. Should we maybe have had a scene where Wai Lin is being sent on her mission and giving her briefing? Like you could maybe give a little bit of that backstory with that character where you're actually seeing her in scenes versus just kind of popping in and out uh, for some reason. Well, yeah. I, I mean, make it almost akin. Oh, this is such a bad thing to bring up, but make it akin to like, you know, Michael Madsen and Jinx. <laughs> oh. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But that, you know what? Scratch that. I don't, <laughs> no, no, I I don't want to continue. I, but you... <laughs> No, but do that, but good. Yeah. Do that, but good. The, the argument. Well, yeah. You could you could fix this uh, even even cheaper. All you have to do is have her get one over on Bond in the end. Like I don't know, say they make it some MacGuffin he has to steal to get off the boat, and then she steals it from him and gets away. And right at the end, he goes to kiss her, and then she's like, "Oh, I've got this," and then like zooms off. And you're like, "Oh, yeah. her." Yeah, because they've they've done that in Bond before. I I can't remember what movie it is for the life of me. Yeah, like the the scene of them making out on wreckage is uh, it doesn't do it for me. No. <laughs> so apparently, December nineteen ninety seven had a lot of scenes of people on wreckage making out. No kidding, <laughs> no kidding, and sinking of ships too. Oh, oh. and stealth boats, and, and especially stealth boats. Oh. It was a big year for stealth boats. I love a good stealth boat. <laughs> I, I hate that that stealth boat is invisible to radar and apparently invisible to everyone's eyes because people have you know periscopes and binoculars on ships if anyone's ever served on a ship before you can look yeah. out the window and they're just like where what, what ship oh <laughs> rockets oh no the devonshire sunk well it's a stealth boat it's this <laughs> that's right it's the same principle as um the black uh speed boats that van damme uh you know attacked <laughs> Roald julia in in street fighter the movie yeah it's a hundred percent the same technology i i yeah. buy that i buy that and it checks out but it is weird to have this Wyland character who you have, you know, these amazing action scenes. But yeah, she's captured right at the start of that ship battle. And then um, she's like chained up and dropped in the water and Bond has to save her again there. It, I think you should have had more moments where she is getting the upper hand. Honestly, if you hand me this movie and say, make a quick rewrite just to give this character something to do. She's the one having the whole fight with Stamper at the end of this movie. And saving Bond. Yeah. Sure. Can, can we talk about Stamper for a minute? Is that is that henchman at all interesting? I know you have very strong feelings about Stamper, Janine. Um, let him let him fly, Mister Tight Shirt himself. It, it's there's there's such a history in James Bond of blonde henchmen that it, it's really even if they changed his hair color, I feel like it would have had a bit more given a bit more leeway to. But they bring in this big, tough, blonde guy. They have him right off the bat, you know, updating Carver um, about bringing down the vessel at the very start. That's our introduction to Stamper. That's our introduction to Carver. They build up like this could be a really exciting henchman. And then he really is just bland and does nothing the whole movie. He has different colored eyes. There's that. Okay. Yeah. One of the early scripts, actually, for this movie, he had a weird condition, as so many Bond villains do, um, but his condition was that 
his body registered pain as pleasure and vice versa. So, like, I feel like little remnants of that are still in the movie where he gets stabbed and seems, like, happy. Mm-hmm. I-, I feel like there's little breadcrumbs of that um, take on the character in the movie, but it's never, ever, you know, vocalized or really paid off. Also, Xenia kind of does the same thing. True. Yeah, and I mean, they would also, in the next Brosnan movie, take that sort of germ of an idea and then apply that to Robert Carlyle's character as well. So, yeah. Okay, I think the moment has come to talk about the one and only Jonathan Price. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, and of course, we're going to be renaming this podcast in honor of him to Price Hards. <laughs> <laughs> Just because of his performance in this film. I, I know I slagged him off when we spoke about Jumpin' Jack Flash. Jonathan, I'm sorry if you're listening. Uh, you're amazing. But Elliot Carver, guys, come on. What have you got? Delicious. Delicious. <laughs> Jonathan Price is so on his game in this movie. It's insane. He, uh, you know, as I said, I watched this movie again that I I didn't want to, but I did. And I just focused on when he was going to be on screen. And he's so much fun. And he brings so much life to this character. And maybe, again, that's a piece of the downfall of, like, Terry Hatcher (laughs) is because, you know, her spouse is so dynamic he's so much fun you know his bonkers typing on his ipad or whatever it is his you know being just so open with being a complete lunatic to anyone and everything is is just for me he is and this is controversial but he is a top tier bond villain overall for that it's funny because he is playing a cartoon. Like, there's nothing about this character that's subtle. He's not going for, say, like, um, you know, what Sean Bean was doing with 006. This is a Bond villain in all caps. But I think he delivers exactly what that asks for. I mean, every scene he's in, he brings to life. Even scenes that, the, I mean, I think the tone of his character maybe clashes with some of the other, the rest of the movie, which... Uh, that's not his fault. That's more on the part of the filmmakers. But every scene he's given, your eyes are glued to him. Um, The only moment that I would slash out of his performance... (laughs) I know what this one is. Uh Uh-huh. Is his impersonation of Kung Fu Uh. to, to, I guess, uh, annoy um, Michelle Yeoh's character, Wylin. That... Oof. And I know, like, especially looking at it through today's lens, that's super problematic. But the fact that his character is so egomaniacal and he is a white man in power. Yeah. You know, you can buy that even possibly in 2020, he would still do that. And maybe not like the scene is it can't really be saved in terms of a sensitivity Mm -hmm. level. But like his his character is never ever threatening and so it's like even scenes like this feels like him trying to come across as threatening and never succeeding like he is i mean the way this character is conceived he is kind of a quote-unquote impotent character you know he loses his wife to james bond he never has any power in any situation he has to rely on this giant blonde guy to be the muscle for everything elliot carver is a little man who wants to be big and I can kind of buy the way he boasts and brags here in a sequence like that, that he still comes across as a like just a little nerd. 
he never seems scary. And I kind of like that mm-hmm. because it makes it so much more satisfying when Bond rams that drill into him, which I think is oh. maybe my favorite Bond villain death of all time. And we just get screaming Jonathan Price being smashed to death by a giant, <laughs> very like <laughs> um, symbolic, symbolically shaped weapon. Yeah. He completely embodies the whole idea of the, the cuckold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how I, I, I took it as. And I was I was actually reading a friend of the show, um, David from License to Queer Block. He just did a queer review of Tomorrow Never Dies. And I was reading his thoughts on the, on the character. And it was really interesting because he said that what uh, Elliot Carver represents is the complete opposite of Bond. He has no physical prowess. He is all smarts but he is not able to react. He's, he's a planner. So every time his, his plan is thwarted by Bond, he gets frustrated and has to come up with a new plan. And I just, I agree, Janine. He's actually top tier villain. Mm-hmm. And he's always snapping at his people too. Like his people don't even really respect him because there's like the security guy who's just like on his phone or something. <laughs> yeah. And, and one big thing I think is to the credit to many, many of the Bond movies is that they are you know, scratching some of the problematic elements, they are fairly timeless. And this this movie, a lot of elements of it suffer from feeling very dated already. So much less how much are they going to hold up in another 20 years. But Jonathan Price's performance as Elliot Carver, it's timeless. I could watch him in 20 years and still find him fun and amusing and be interested in where this character is going to go. I think it's interesting, too, that this movie comes out in 1997. And in 1996, in October, I believe, Fox News launches. So it mm. feels timely for that moment to have this villain who's a news baron, who's inventing all the sensationalistic news to try to, you know, cause issues. I mean, it's something that still exists today. I mean, um, you know, Donald Trump, that was obviously a key part of his campaign to be president was to say, you know, the news lies and he's weaponized it that way. Whereas here we have the news actually weaponizing news to cause issues themselves. So like, I do find it interesting to see this sort of commentary on Fox news in 1997 when it is so fresh and they don't have the perspective of the damage it could do going forward. This is literally them commenting on it like a year later. And it hadn't even come over here at this point. We didn't have 24-hour news when this came out. So it mm. was definitely a Fox News thing. And I can imagine that's where they got the idea from. But for us, it was like, oh, this is a terrifying concept. Yeah, like Jonathan Price's character was modeled on Rupert Murdoch, uh, Ted Turner, mm-hmm. and also William Randolph Hearst, who, um, of course, was kind of fictionalized and portrayed in the movie Citizen Kane. Um but it's kind of like they just took all the kind of the evil villain elements of those. Although there's some Steve Jobs in this character oh, as well. Absolutely. The wardrobe alone. <laughs> and the iPad. The iPad as well, yeah. So it's like they kind of took all these kind of evil tech slash news guy traits, put them together, but then made him in so many ways harmless. I think it's very interesting. The only person he kills is one of his own men. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's a good point. He literally is the the beta male stereotype. Yeah. Yeah. At a time when I don't know if that was intentional in 1997. Like, I I think it's a little iffy and it hasn't aged well when you have Bond saying, I never believe what I read in the press. I'm like, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh. (laughs) Uh-oh. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's scary how that is, how this is almost basically true now. Yeah, it really is. So, like, I feel like while I don't uh, think the plot of Jonathan Price's character of getting exclusive broadcast rights in China uh, for his newspapers and, you know, TV news divisions makes a lot of sense nowadays, um, some of the commentary stuff is at least interesting to talk about. Absolutely. Um, now, has anyone got any other insight onto Elliot Carver? Otherwise, I'll throw it out to final thoughts and final thoughts on characters. Um, I think I don't have anything about Elliot Carver, but I think we should touch on a couple of the action scenes because I think, you know, Scott, you and I have both said, like, we really enjoy the action in this movie. And whether it's the backseat driving action sequence or the motorcycle chase, I think both of these deserve some uh, acknowledgement. Absolutely. The, the backseat driving scene, oh. I remember, I, I loved it from seeing it in, like, as a kid. I thought it was fantastic. He was doing it with his phone. I couldn't even imagine stuff like that. And I actually, it was actually filmed in a shopping center quite near me, which I was quite chuffed about as a kid too. Oh, wow. Yeah, Blue Water Shopping Center. Check it out, folks. It's still a car park <laughs> and it's still boring. <laughs> now you've got to go and drive your car off the uh, ramp on it. <laughs> Yeah, to get a photo off. I'll just rig it so I'm like driving it from the back seat with like rope and just scare people as I'm driving around the car park. Is there an Avis car rental place right next to it? Oh, you know there was, and then someone drove their car through it. It was really weird. Mm. Mm. That'll that'll happen. Um, so Janine, are you a fan of the backseat driving sequence? I mean, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan, no, and and it's probably just because I'm not a huge fan of. Pierce Brosnan chuckling to himself in the back of a car. <laughs> That's the best bit. He looks so happy. <laughs> I love that too. I will defend that to my dying breath. I love touching on that. I love the Q being dressed up as a Avis car rental guy. I love that. Yeah, that's fun. Although that's the moment where like Bond that. See. That's your highlight. Yeah. <laughs> the moment though where like Bond does the test drive of the car is a little cheesy. Oh, ugh. yeah. Let's see how I handle her. Oh, all right then. Okay. I think for me, the backseat driving sequence is probably the action highlight of the movie for me. Really? And a lot of that has to do, I think so. I love it. I love the use of the gadgets in it. But also, I got to give major props to David Arnold, who I think his score for this sequence is next level yeah. great. Major, major props. Was that like an Admiral's Robux sidekick or something? Or? It is, yeah, yeah. Right, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think me, like, I like the idea of the car, but I just, I always kind of have a problem when Bond seems to be having too much fun in mm. these scenes. And, and maybe it's a Pierce Brosnan thing because I just find him to be just not the greatest Bond. I just found it a little hard to believe that he'd be laying in the backseat like, ha-ha. Do you prefer the motorcycle chase? Yeah. I far prefer the motorcycle okay. chase. I think I think it's a lot more interesting. Um, it's this is stretching it a bit, but it's a little bit more grounded in reality, <laughs> which I can sometimes <laughs> find fun to see in a Bond movie, where it's like, okay, I I can't drive my car from the back seat, but maybe I could be handcuffed to someone on a motorbike. And just seeing things like the motorcycle jump mm -hmm. and the skid, like those are real stunts. Yeah. And they look fantastic. Yeah. I think for me, the best part is when the helicopter is driving into the building and you can see the dumb yeah. the windows. <laughs> they just crashed their stomach. You can see their arms hanging out. They haven't, it's just, it's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's great. Yeah. I, I love that. I will say one sequence I've never liked and I think has 
still completely devoid of tension and just drags out the movie is when Bond and Wylin go diving um, after the halo jump to the to the sunk uh, HMS um, Devonshire. I find that whole underwater sequence really dull, and I can tell they're trying to kind of replicate that opening with the missile tension with the um, Devonshire, you know, the ground underneath it crumbling and it's going to tip over, Mm -hmm. but it does not work for me at all. Uh, Underwater sequences in Bond movies are either great or just brutal. There's no in-between. Yeah. And this, this (laughs) this was not on the great side. This might be the worst one. I'm trying to think of a worse one. I don't know that there is. I don't know. Sean Connery with the shark and the perspex. No, that's brilliant. Uh, <laughs> anything with sharks is better. Is infinitely superior. Um, no, this one's pretty bad. The other one I can think of is when they're sort of camouflaging the plane underwater. Okay, um, that's a good one. That's a, but that one suffers more from just being long. Yeah. But I, I have a lot of time for the, the motorcycle scene as well, though. I, I would say the car scene is my favorite of the two, but it, it is cool to see Michelle Yeoh is doing most of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's clearly jumping back and forth, and she's clearly in charge of that stunt. And most of the time, it's uh, from when they're shot from the back, it's clearly not Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. Um, I just sorry have a note here I want to ask you guys. Um, the big finale at the end, which feels a little bit like Under Siege, the uh, Steven Seagal movie. <laughs> with them on the boat, the double machine guns and things like that. But uh, I think it's fairly effective. There's some weird slow-mo in there that's very dated. But um, there's a scene where Bond takes hold of a missile launcher. Why is this missile launcher inside a stealth boat? Um, So that Bond can take control of it. I was baffled. (laughs) And I'm I'm wondering if there's a logical reason that someone could explain why this missile launcher is inside the boat. But I can't come up with a reason. Maybe a hatch opens on the side and the rockets fire out the hatch. Yeah, or on the ceiling. Yeah, maybe because it's kind of he has to he has to like doesn't he shoot the pneumatic bit at the back and then turn it round? Yeah, he does. So he unlocks it. So it was probably locked to fire out, and that's how he changes the angle. I guess. I guess I'm willing to go with that. I just had questions about it while I was watching it. I had something that bugged me throughout the film. And I don't know if you guys picked up on it. But it certainly wasn't in Goldeneye. They use a lot of like kapow noises <laughs> for, for all of the punches and the kicks that land. It's like, and it's just really, it just jumps out at you. I don't know why they chose to do that as a sound editing thing because they didn't have it in by Goldeneye at least. Well, there's a lot and of. I... Oh, go ahead, Janine. Oh, I was just gonna say, and I don't think that's sort of like a byproduct of that period in film. It's not like that was happening everywhere. Well, I mean, was it? This is a point in time where the influence of Asian action directors is crossing into American cinema. Uh-huh. So, like John mm-hmm. Woo has crossed over. He's made Hard Target and he's made um, uh, Broken Arrow, and a lot of these guys are coming over. And so, I'm wondering if they were looking at Hong Kong action cinema and trying to replicate some of the action sounds you'd hear in those films, possibly. That would be my only really? guess that makes sense. It it just throughout the whole film, every single fight scene was ruined by that noise for me. Right. I didn't really. Um, it didn't phase me at all. Um, yeah, I I was cool with it. I, I do have a question though. Speaking of things you can hear, um, Scott, you kind of alluded to it earlier. I take it you're not a fan of the Cheryl Crow opening song for this movie. 
It's awful. It's actually on one of my like worst Bond songs. Interesting. Which is a shame because the KD Lang song in the end credits is much better. Janine, where do you stand on the theme song for Tomorrow Never Dies? It's sort of middle for me. Um, I like Cheryl Crow. I think she has a great voice. Um, it doesn't offend me, but it's definitely not sort of in the top that I would choose to put on if I was going to jam out to some Bond music. It fits, it fits the movie. I find the visuals of the opening, I, I love them. Like, yep. I really love... Um, mm-hmm. it's Daniel Kleinman did the um, openings for this one. And I think he did uh, Goldeneye as well. Um, his work is fantastic. But the song, I've always been middle of the road on it. It's I, I, Cheryl Crow is a singer I have nothing against, but I don't know that she's the best choice for a Bond song. Katie Lang nails it so much oh. in that song Surrender mm-hmm. at the end that I, I do wish Katie Lang had been given the opportunity. And I feel like the reason she wasn't uh, or was denied, you know, opening credits is because they just wanted a more popular pop singer at the time to market. And Cheryl Crow, this is around the time, I think, I think, of all the Lilith Fair stuff. And I think they just wanted to market Cheryl Crow more. I would agree. But Katie Lang's song. It's a great oh. song. There's just a, a note that Cheryl Crow hits. It just makes my ears cringe. Mm. I'm not going to try and replicate it. I'll get Janine to do it later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, I don't. I just can't listen to it. It's, I always get skipped when I'm listening to Bond themes. It's not one I skip. So I guess I'm more agnostic on it. I'm just not a big fan, especially coming after Tina Turner and um, U2's version, um, you know, with Goldeneye. Well, and Cam, I think you agree with me on this. We're fans of uh, Bond theme song singers that have big voices Mm -hmm. and can hit big notes. And there's always, you know, generally a spot in that song where it's just like, boom, there it is. You know, Adele, especially. Mm -hmm. Huge, these moments. Sam Smith. (laughs) Tina Turner um, and stuff like that. And... And so it's like Cheryl Crow, the aforementioned Sam Smith, don't have that. Yeah. And actually, Billie Eilish sort of falls in between, Ugh. but it, it te- <laughs> but it tends, I, I don't know, just in general, those songs that don't have those singers that really give you those moments, they just always fall short. You're looking for an all-time high. Oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll take on the world and win. That's right. All right, guys, we're here. The question, Tomorrow Never Dies, is it making the knock list and joining Goldeneye? I'll start with Janine as you're our guest. <laughs> okay, uh, I've thought a lot about this. Uh, <laughs> and I, <laughs> by a lot, I mean 10 seconds. Um, I do, there's definitely an advantage here because I've seen every single Bond movie multiple times. So I am very familiar with the quality of spy work um, in that body of films. Whereas I know from listening to some of the other Spy Heart episodes, um, there's films in series that you haven't seen the full series. So you're kind of guessing on whether or not it belongs there Mm -hmm. or a later film does. Um, So this movie for me definitely (laughs) would, I would say no to being on the knock list and not just because I think there's better examples, much, much better examples of James Bond doing spy work. But I also found just so many times in this movie, Bond was behind the eight ball. 
or being found out right away, you know, right off the bat with uh, when he's talking to Paris and Elliot Carver's basically recording them and he's on to Bond within seconds. Mm -hmm. So I just don't think it's a good example of Bond spy work. And I just don't think it's a good example of spy work in general. So for that, I would say no. Okay. Cam, is it joining the knock list? And when I say knock list, it's the need to see official classics because we have to specify acronyms on this podcast. That's right. Yeah. Um, I, I do struggle with this one. This kind of falls for me in that category of the movies I enjoy a lot, but I have to really ask myself, do they belong on the knock list? And that's something I will battle with a lot with James Bond movies because I love the whole franchise so much. I think for me, the weaknesses of this one you know, we've got Goldeneye in the knock list. We've got Dr. No in the knock list. Those are exceptional examples of James Bond films. And it's like, am I willing to bend over backwards to accommodate this movie just because it's a James Bond movie with action scenes I enjoy, a villain I love, and some really cool elements? Uh, but then what about the fact that like neither of the you know female leads have any chemistry with Bond? What about the fact the quips and the nonstop jokes get to be a bit much? So I feel like this one kind of falls into that B grade for me where I still enjoy it. I can guarantee you I'm going to see this movie many more times before, you know, I shuffle off the mortal coil. But I just don't think it exemplifies the best of what James Bond offers. So I'm going to have to say no. Okay, that's two no's. So my vote means nothing at all. (laughs) But let's have it anyway. Um, For me, this film feels the same sort of void uh, as The Man from Uncle does. Mm. Uh, where it's a film I enjoy, and much like you, Cam, I would go back and watch again. It was the two that I owned on VHS as a kid, and they were the ones I would watch and watch again. I, I just enjoy them. But is this film going to stand up against GoldenEye and Doctor No? There's just there's just no way in hell. It's a guilty pleasure film, but it's not going on the knock list. Mm-hmm. I also was really just like tortured by the fact it's like, can I justify putting Tomorrow Never Dies on the knock list when I've denied The Born Identity and Men in Black? Two movies that, you know, do their stories, I think, a lot better than this movie does. This movie doesn't really do a story very well. It just has great sequences and a good villain. This film has a great cast and just, I think, bad writing. Yeah. I I don't even know if it's bad writing or if it's just like almost like just pull back, just kind of like throw all the elements there. That's all we have time for. It just feels much more like like a very serviceable script that almost in some ways feels like just a fan could have written it. I don't know if it's great cast. <laughs> are, you, are, you on, are you on team uh, Wooden Terry Hatcher? <laughs> I am. I don't know if that's a team I want to okay. be on or okay. not. You, you just don't like Dad Brosnan? Yeah. Okay. Uh, right well there we go that is a three-way no and officially tomorrow never dies is not making the knock list and with that revelation the dossier on tomorrow never dies is complete and filed as classified support for spy hearts is brought to you by manscaped when it comes to below the waist grooming nobody does it better manscaped's tech masterminds provide the most efficient tools an aspiring spy could hope for when it comes to prepping the family jewels so Scott, what do you do to look after your double O's? Well, Cam, as you know, we work on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and that means sometimes we need to improvise. I've had to rely on all kinds of unreliable methods, including beard trimmers and even razor blades. 
And let's just say a couple of times my 007 almost became a 006. Put down the gold-cutting laser, Scott. (laughs) Because as Q once said, never let them see you bleed and always have a Manscaped strategy. Well, Manscaped delivers on both fronts, thanks to their new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. This state-of-the-art electric hair trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade, a 90-minute battery, and the company's pioneered advanced skin-safe technology. Agents can trust their safety will be guaranteed when it comes to field work. Plus, this technology is waterproof and features an illuminating LED light for close-up precision. Even if you're swimming with sharks, you'll be able to keep the British end up. And this trimmer's high-speed 70,000 RPM motor will never compromise your stealth mode thanks to Manscaped's Quiet Stroke technology. These guys understand the demands of the lifestyle and are even throwing in a USB-powered charging stand as well. Spies do tend to live out of a suitcase, after all. Don't I know it. Experience it firsthand yourself. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SPYHARDS. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S at manscaped.com. We officially grant you all a license to trim. Your thunderballs will thank you. Okay, Cam, what are we tackling next week? We are hanging out with Hitchcock again. We're going back to 1935 to tackle the 39 steps. I can't wait. It's not a film I've seen. It's not a film I'm familiar with, but we're going to go back to the 30s and I seem to enjoy it last time. That's right. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch the 39 steps and join us next week. Now, before we talk about social media, Janine, thank you for coming on the show. Where can people hear more from you? Um, I do not have a podcast and I don't really do anything interesting at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to hear from me, um, then maybe listen to Subspace Transmissions podcast. Get out. Um, the season, <laughs> the season of Discovery has just started. And so there may be a chance that I will be guest appearing at some point on there. Very likely. Very likely. And are you on social media? I, well, I know you are because I follow you and I see a lot of dog posts and a lot of, uh, a lot of weightlifting. So I am on social media. Um, my social media is primarily... Um, yes, my dog, Vesper, as well as I compete in uh, strongman weightlifting. So you can find me on there. My name is underscore banana underscore strong underscore. Okay, cool. There we go. And speaking of social media, don't forget to follow us discreetly at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, where you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can, of course, find the knock list at letterbox.com slash spyhards. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows. <laughs>